All right, take your Bible, go to Mark chapter 9. We're going to finish out Mark 9 this morning. Um, and just to recap kind of where we've been the last few weeks. So when we picked back up uh, after the first of the year in Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 2, we, uh, two weeks ago now, we looked at the transfiguration, that, that, uh, that scene on uh, the mountain where Jesus was fundamentally transformed in front of his disciples' eyes. We're told his, his clothes became white, his face uh, shone like the sun. Moses and Elijah joined him and uh, kind of affirming for, for Jesus and for the, for the uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John, who are on the mountain with him, that, that he, was the, he is the chosen Messiah and uh, says that Moses and Elijah were talking with him about his exodus, so about the, the upcoming uh, arrest and crucifixion and, and resurrection. Those, those were the things that they were talking about there. And then last week we saw they came down off the mountain and immediately were faced with, uh, with, with a child who was uh, being afflicted by a demon, and uh, they had some issues because the disciples couldn't cast it out, and perhaps they were being ridiculed by the religious leaders and others because they were having issues. And so Jesus uh, cast out the this, this spirit that was causing the boy so much issue and then used that as a teaching moment for his disciples. And today we're going to see that pick up as we really begin making the journey to Jerusalem where Jesus will ultimately be arrested and crucified. Um, as we are still... Uh, in, the, in the biblical timeline, uh, roughly six months or so out from that uh, experience, but everything is leading towards the cross, and, and things will begin escalating to that point. And so uh, let's, uh, if you have Mark chapter 9 open, we're going to read verses 30 through 50. So a bit of an extended passage this morning, but um, uh, one that will, that will have a lot to say to us this morning, I believe. So if you have uh, your, your Bible there, stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Mark chapter 9, starting verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them and, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward, there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to 
fall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to fall, cut it, fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to stand and to proclaim your word. I pray that you would shape us and mold us through it this morning. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. All right, so here's our big idea for the morning. Simply this, all right? Discipleship is a lifelong process marked by patterns of sin and repentance, okay? Discipleship is a lifelong process marked by patterns of sin and repentance. And what we'll note in the life of the disciples is that they often uh, did not understand what Jesus was saying. And, and even spending time with Jesus, as we'll see in our passage this morning, they they still wrestled with, this, with, the, with their pride, with their selfishness. They wrestled with sins. And yet one of the things that we see is Jesus taking those opportunities not to condemn them, but to correct them and to mold them into the character of Jesus. Now, you'll notice it's a, I say it's a lifelong process because one of the things that, that you will learn if you've been a believer for very long is that uh, you don't become perfect ever. And often what we find is, is uh, we, we may conquer one area of sin and one area of temptation only to find another one rear its ugly head. So the thing that sets us apart then as believers is not perfection, but repentance. How do we respond when we realize we've sinned? Are we putting up safeguards in our life to try to protect against sin as much as possible? We'll, we'll see that pattern play out in a couple of ways this morning. At the beginning of our passage, though, Jesus reminds his disciples of his mission. He just reminded, he just told them at the end of, or in verse 29, as, as they were kind of asking themselves, why, why couldn't we cast out this demon that, that, that was afflicting this boy? We, we, we've had success with that before. Why couldn't we do this? And, and Jesus tells them, verse 29, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. In other words, their, their faith uh, was, was lacking and, and they're, they're, they were not placing their faith in the right person. So as they're leaving that place and made their way through Galilee is what verse 30 says. Now what's happening here is they are making their way through Galilee, heading toward Jerusalem. So the cross is beginning to loom large on the horizon with Jesus and the disciples. 
but he did not want anyone to know it. So one of the things that we've seen throughout Mark's gospel is this kind of what's been called the secrecy motif, where, where Jesus will do something, he'll teach his disciples, then he'll say, but don't tell anyone about it. We've, we've talked about this uh, before. We talked about this last fall. A big part of that was uh, simply him not wanting his mission to be hindered by the attention it would draw if word got out that he was the Messiah. There would be plenty of time for that declaration later. There'd be plenty of time for that declaration once he was risen from the dead. And once his disciples had a better understanding of who he is, because as we'll see, they still don't get it. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he was killed, he will rise three days later. Now, you might look at this and say, it seems like he's being pretty clear about what he's telling them. And I think we would be right. But verse 32 tells us, but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask. Now, it, it's easy for us, I think, to, to give the disciples a hard time here because it's so clear. And yet, how many times have we read something in God's Word that's crystal clear, and yet we struggled to believe it or we struggled to do what it very clearly commands us to do? Right? I mean, it, it's easy for us to picture the disciples hearing these words from Jesus. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after I'm killed, I'm going to rise three days later. Now, Jesus, what do you mean by that exactly? Now, when you say killed, is that a metaphor for something? They did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. So Jesus is telling them, he's teaching them what's about to come. And yet they don't have ears to hear the truth yet. And I think we learn, excuse me, we learn why in the next passage. Because if we get into verse 33, into this next extended passage, what we're going to see is Jesus readjusts his disciples' mindset. Could be one of the reasons that they are missing what Jesus is teaching them is because of the hardness of their own heart. Look with me at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? So they've been walking together. Apparently the disciples got in some sort of an argument. They didn't want Jesus to know. So he finally just asked them, what, are you, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Now, put this into context of what they just heard from Jesus. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of evil men. He will be killed he will rise three days later and the disciples are trying to figure out which one of them is more important. Verse 35, we see that he sat down. Which in the, in the first century Jewish culture was a signal that there was some formal teaching about to happen. Now we, we know that Jesus uh, was always teaching his disciples. But a few times throughout the Gospels, we see him taking this, um, t- taking this posture of a rabbi, of a formal teacher. He sits down, and that's, that signals them that class is now in session. 
He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. See, he tells them that instead of jockeying for position, they should be serving one another. Now, this runs counter to our common understanding of how things work, and, and it certainly did even in the first century. In fact, the great philosopher Plato himself said this. Listen to these words. How can man be happy when he has to serve someone? There, there's the worldly wisdom, right? Wor- worldly wisdom would say, I, I'm happy when I have other people serving me, right? And, and, and in fact, our culture would say, um, you deserve to be served by someone else and you deserve to be served well by someone else, Right? Think of how many times you've seen um, a waiter or a waitress mistreated because of something that they may or may not have had any control over. Yet Jesus turns the tables. He said, if you want to be great, serve others. And to illustrate that, he brings a child and had him stand among them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Um, Isn't this interesting? You know, the thing about children is they kind of force you to be a servant. Because they, especially in the early years, can't care for themselves. And if we're going to be honest, they're actually pretty selfish, right? Especially babies. I mean, they just scream. If they're unhappy, they just scream. Right? They don't, they don't get what they want. They've got a dirty diaper. They're hungry. What do they do? They just scream. And you're just supposed to come running, right? That, that's, isn't that a humbling thing to, to realize that this little thing that weighs eight pounds can have so much control over your life? And yet, I think that's part of God's sanctification process for reminding us how little we are actually in control of life and reminding us that we are called to serve. In fact, in first century, particularly in secular cultures, children were not as revered as they were today because they took up a lot of time. They, they, they demanded attention. What did they contribute to society? And now, thankfully, generally speaking, as, a, as the world and as a culture, we've, we've come to a better understanding of the blessing of children. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes one little child welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me not only welcomes, does not only welcome me, but him who sent me. What's also interesting is that in the Aramaic language, which which Jesus would have spoken, Jesus and the disciples would have spoken, the words child and the word servant are the same. Isn't that interesting? This makes a natural connection point for Jesus, saying, listen, you want to, you want to really be great, be a servant. You want to really be great, welcome those that others don't welcome. Welcome. 
Now we shift gears and yet Jesus is still going to be readjusting his disciples' mindset even though we, we shift gears. Maybe, maybe this got just a little uncomfortable so John decides to change the subject. In verse 38, John says, a Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. So here's what happened. Apparently disciples saw someone ministering in Jesus's name who was not a part of their group. And so he stopped him. He said, you can't do that. Now, let's keep in mind that last week, the disciples themselves were unable to cast out an evil spirit. And here's John stopping someone else who's apparently able to do that by using the name of Jesus. John, John basically says, hey, hey Jesus, I, uh, I found somebody uh, who, who, who thought they were a part of us, but they're not part of our group. So, so I stopped him. And I think he's waiting for like this pat on the back from Jesus. You know, that other church over there, they worshiped a little bit differently than, than we do. And so I told them they don't, need to be, they don't need to do that, right? Now, let me be clear here. I'm not talking about folks that are way out in left field uh, proclaiming all kinds of religious nonsense, okay? What, what I'm talking about is, I think the, the distinction we have to make are folks who, with, with whom we would agree on some basic tenets, like salvation is in Christ alone through faith alone. The Bible is God's word. And if they might worship a little bit differently than than we are, one of the things Jesus is teaching us here is that we're not the ones to decide who's in and who's out. Unless they're proclaiming a different gospel to which Scripture tells us we, we, we are able to call out false gospels. So, so there might be some churches that worship a little bit differently than we do that you might not feel super comfortable in, and, and, and that's, that's fine. The question is, are they proclaiming Jesus? Because here Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. Now really quickly, Matthew 12.30 will will turn this on its head. So, so listen to these words from Matthew 12, 30. Anyone who is not against me, uh, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So do you know what I see in these, in these two passages, Mark 9, 40 and Matthew 12, 30? What, what I see here is there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. We're either with him or we're against him. There's no middle ground. But just because someone doesn't fit neatly into our little theological or denominational box doesn't mean that they're out. Doesn't mean that they're not of Christ. What it does mean is that we we need to judge all things according to the Word of God. Filter all teaching that we hear through the Word of God. Filter all worldly philosophies that we may hear in the world around us through the Word of God. This, this is our basis for truth. But look at verse 41, because Jesus clarifies for us here 
when, when we begin talking about being a servant in, in the name of Christ and, and whoever's first is, will, will be last, whoever's last will be first. And if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and be servant of all, as we saw in, in verse 35. Well, then the question comes, well, what kind of service matters in the kingdom of God? Do I like, need to pack up my family and go to seminary and move across the, the, to the other side of the world to go serve Christ? Is that the kind of service that counts? Well, yes, but that's not all. Look what Jesus says in verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So what we see here that even small things done in the name of Christ can have eternal impact. So Jesus clarifies that greatness in the kingdom of God does not depend upon acts that the world would consider great. But even the smallest thing, cup of cold water, can make a difference. In fact, this verse, uh, Mark 9, 41, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name is the theme for Southern Baptist disaster relief. Um, what they believe, and, and I agree, I've, I've had the opportunity to serve with them a couple of times, is, is that a small act can make a big difference in the kingdom of God. Going into an area that's been decimated by a hurricane or a tornado or a fire, earthquakes, be, being able to go in and offer people that might not have money or might not have insurance and clean up their, the mess that a flood has left. In the process, be able to have conversations with them about who Jesus is. Even those seemingly small acts make a big difference. Pray that just as Jesus readjusted his disciples' mindset, he would readjust our mindset as well then we might begin to see other people the way Jesus sees them. We might be, begin to see acts of service the way Jesus sees them. Then finally, starting in verse 42, Jesus rebukes sinful motives. He's again going to use the illustration of a child. Look at 45. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, there were a couple of types of millstones back in the day. There was, there was a small one that, that women would typically use. It was, it was a hand stone to grind grain. And there was a larger one that, that would have to be pulled by a donkey in order to... to it, was, it was so large, a donkey had to pull it in order to, to move it to crush the grain. And it's this kind that Jesus is talking about here. Not a little rock, but a boulder. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these children, I think that could also refer to a child in the faith who believe in me to fall away. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone, a boulder were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In fact, it's, it's possible that this was even a form of execution by, Ro by the Romans tying somebody to a boulder, throwing it in the ocean and drowning them. <laughs> and Jesus says this, this fate is actually preferable to causing an immature, an immature believer to stumble. 
In other words, for, for those of us who claim the name of Christ, we must be careful how we live. Not perfect, as I said at the beginning. We're not, we're not ever going to reach that perfection, but are our lives marked by patterns of repentance when we stumble? And then Jesus turns his attention to the prevention of sin, the trying to set up precautions and safeguards in our life against sin, and he uses hyperbole, okay? So, so let me say that from the beginning. He's not advocating for self-mutilation. He's using this shocking, over-the-top example to make a very serious spiritual point, and that is that we must do whatever it takes to remove sin from our lives and to safeguard against that sin. We have to fight against sin with all that we have. And this is how he describes it. 43. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into the hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A Puritan pastor and writer from several centuries ago, a guy by the name of John Owen, described it this way. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the way Paul would describe it in Colossians 3. It says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Where Jesus would say, do whatever it takes. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Gouge out your eye. Paul says this. Put those things to death. Crucify those sinful desires. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, this is an interesting transition here. He just went from, from fighting sin to, to now talking about um, the, the trials and the tests that each of us faces in life. And through those tests, just like salt purifies and preserves the tests of life can refine us. See, in the, in the ancient world, salt was used not primarily for taste like us, right? You, uh, for us, salt is, is, is a flavor agent. In, in the ancient times, salt was used as a preservative before we developed electric refrigeration. And 
He goes on and he says this, for salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, what Jesus is saying here is that as followers of Christ, we should be preserving agents in the world. The way Paul would describe that is he would say uh, that, that we go out as ambassadors for Christ proclaiming this message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Working for the good of our community, the good of our society. Pointing our culture away from sinful practices toward godly things. Now he says the salt should lose its flavor. Now what's he getting at? Well, in, in modern times, we have, um, we have a purified salt, which means it, it can't really become unsalty. But in, in the first century, salt had impurities that would allow it over, over time to lose its flavor. And what, what happens if you have salt that's not salty anymore? <laughs> really, you only have sand. It's ineffective. And so what Jesus is saying here is that it is possible for believers, for true disciples, to become ineffective in our task. But instead, rather than being ineffective, the end of 50, he says this, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. We're commanded to continue being salt, to continue to continue to continue being agents of preservation in the world around us, to live at peace with one another. You know, one of the saddest things in the world is a quarrelsome Christian. Someone who's always unhappy, always looking for a reason to complain. You can, if you, if you spend any time in church at all, Growing up, I have certain images that flashed in my mind of people who were just always mad about something. I mean, like they walked in the door with a frown on their face on Sunday mornings, and they walked out with an even bigger one. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We get enough anger in the world. We don't need it in the church. I'll never forget, I was at a, I was at a funeral, believe it or not, of all places, and uh, a guy I'd known my whole life came up and and he was one of those that, um, he, he didn't ever have a thought that passed through his mind that he didn't post on Facebook, if you know what I mean. Um, and they weren't usually very kind thoughts. He just, I mean, just no filter, right? Whatever came up, he, he was going to post it. And, and I remember he came up to me, and, and this was, I mean, I hadn't seen this guy in probably three or four years. Came up, shook hands, and, and immediately his question was, so do you have very many friends that are angry Christians on Facebook? Well, I can think of one. <laughs> oh, listen, we get enough of that in the world. We're called to be people of peace and joy. Remember, go through the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that are to mark the life of a believer. Not anger, bitterness, wrath. Now, those are the things we're told to put aside, right? To put to death the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. 
Now, at times, even as believers, will those things creep in? Of course. That's why the life of a disciple, as we said at the beginning, is marked by patterns of sin and repentance. This is what Paul calls us to. Romans 12, 18. If possible, and I love that he puts that qualifier on there. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is one of the only places I can think in Scripture where, where Paul puts a couple of, of qualifiers on there. If it's possible, as much as you have a say in it, live at peace with everyone. In other words, I think he acknowledges here, it's not going to always be possible, and it's not going to always depend on you. But if there is strife in a relationship, Paul would say, don't let it be because of you. If there's a brokenness and a bitterness in in a relationship, don't you be the cause of it as a follower of Christ. Rather, let us strive to live at peace with everyone. Wrap up with with our big idea again. Discipleship is a lifelong process marked by patterns of sin and repentance. Listen, our lives are not going to be marked by perfection. Even the disciples wrestled with that, wrestled with their own position and arguing about who would be the greatest. And Jesus calls them to repentance and reminds them that the life of a Christ follower is a life of service. Well, Jesus, we saw some folks that didn't look like us, and and so we needed to stop them. Jesus says, no. They're, They're serving in my name. God's, God can work through that. Do whatever it takes. Be aggressive in rooting out sin in your life, putting it to death. Just like John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let us be people that are serious about holiness, about righteousness, and about striving to live at peace with others. Here's the good news, 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. So here's the good news. We're, we're gonna, we'll experience sufferings in this life. We'll experience pain. As, Paul said, or as Jesus said, you'll be salted with fire. Yeah, for those of us who've placed our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, here's the promise that Christ himself, who called us to himself, will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. We're told he'll do that himself. That frees us from the power of sin and death. That frees us to walk as agents of reconciliation and people of peace. It enables us to walk in holiness. Here's, that's the best news of all. You don't, as a follower of Christ, you don't walk through this alone. The Holy Spirit walks with us, guiding us, correcting us, pointing us toward righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to gather together and open up your word. I pray we'd be encouraged this morning as we see the, the example of the, of the disciples who had issues following Christ even when he was in the flesh and 
Yet Christ had patience with them and, and pointed them towards holiness and righteousness. I pray you would do the same in our own lives. Help us to be people who are serious about following you, serious about putting sin to death in our lives. Where it's necessary, putting safeguards up so that we are not tempted. Because we are followers of Christ, that we would strive to live at peace. With, with your help, working to ensure that where there is strife, it's not because of us. But that we would go out of our way to make peace with those around us. Show us how to do that. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.